Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It was Sunday, the 14th of September, 1997, and 26,000 fans at the Sydney Football Stadium watched a semi-final grudge match between Manly and the Newcastle Knights. The match won 27-12 by the defending premiers, was a typically spiteful affair in the latest instalment of a rivalry which had threatened to boil over for three years. The only problem? The match was completely meaningless, with both winner and loser heading straight into a preliminary final in week three of the ARL semi-final series. It was one more farcical situation in a farcical year, but inadvertently set the stage for one of the greatest moments in rugby league history. This is part three of It's My Game, the 37th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Mike Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Got my name this week. Well done, mate. <laughs> Almost forgot mine, so <laughs> you know you, you're not alone. How's things? Uh, yeah, so here it is, the last instalment of our 1997 ARL season recap. And I usually cede the floor to you at this point in proceedings, but I'm going to just say my opening thoughts about this. Reading this chapter, as we're recording this, I'm putting the final touches on our Newcastle chapter. This unbelievable fairy tale or half a fairy tale as I'm sure you'll tell me (laughs) Uh, but a great story that we'll you know be talking all about soon but I'm putting this research together as I'm reading over my final notes for this chapter the chapter that we're you know about to deliver the final installment of and is this the least deserved fairy tale of all time. It's so rugby league, though, to fall ass backwards into a great moment like that. <laughs> it, it so is. It's so just like just meet Tina Turner as manager at the airport. <laughs> Grand final, you know. Oh, it's really beautiful. <laughs> so in this episode, we're going to be looking at the semi-final series and how that played out. Uh, before we get to the semi-finals, I thought it was a good opportunity to look a bit at the landscape of ARL players and and some Super League players as well, for that matter, uh, with the, the major awards of the season. So there was no Dally M's this year because of the split competitions. You had the Super League awards, which we've talked about, uh, but then there were some ARL-specific awards and, of course, the Rugby League Week's Player of the Year awards. And, of course, there was also the Rugby League Week Players Poll, a much-missed institution in the history of Australian Rugby League. God, I love that. Look forward to it every year. And I think possibly the drive for controversy is kind of what affected it in the early 2000s with the constant most overrated player side of things. But there was something really pure about the players' poll in the 90s. Yeah, it wasn't about that. I mean, um, you could probably say if Brayton Astor was a better player, we'd still have it. Yeah. (laughs) So... Just some uh, asides. Firstly, 
One of my favourite questions in this year's poll, were you in favour of New South Wales changing their state of origin strip, to which 98% of respondents said no? <laughs> what an absolute world's biggest L on um, I know. decision-making. But I wonder who the 2% were. I know, I know. <laughs> Uh, Mark Geyer hanging on to his shortest fuse belt. That was an award he shared with Gary Freeman the year before, but with Freeman gone, it was MG's all to his own. I was just looking at the also runs in the shortest fuse competition. There's got to be a significant increase in fuse length since that era. Like, There's no one compares today to guys like that, is there? No, I mean, and this is a real like Hall of Fame of short fuse guys. So Mark Geyer winning it from John Hoppawati, Craig Field, Wayne Bartram, Michael Hancock, Terry Hill, and Jeff Toovey. It wasn't a quarter-inch of fuse in that um, whole group. <laughs> uh, and overall, uh, Super League got a mixed bag with 52% of respondents calling the success of Super League average, 28 successful, 12 poor, 6 very poor, and 2 very successful. Who were they? Uh, maybe the same two who were in favour of the two-tone in the ARL. Uh, but to the actual gauge for who were the best players, who were the best coaches, Tim Sheens regained the crown that he'd lost to Phil Gould the year before, Phil Gould having taken it off Sheens for 1996. So Tim Sheens uh, polled first in with 23 out of 100. Then it was Phil Gould with 18, Wayne Bennett with 15, Bob Fulton with 11, uh, Tommy Radonikus with six, which that's a, a head scratcher as well. <laughs> More G-ups. The thing that like stands out to me with this, so Tim Sheens gets the award back. The year that he goes up to the Cowboys, he wasn't really going great guns with them, which isn't really a slight on him. Uh, and, you know, his last couple of years at Canberra, they probably underperformed. So it was just strange that he was taking the title back at this point in time. It is really strange. The thing that stands out to me about that also is Wayne Bennett. Uh, so this was, you know, the year that he'd win his third grand final uh, with Brisbane winning the Super League. But I think at this point in his career, maybe it was viewed that two premierships with the Broncos was about par what he should have got with that champion team of the 90s. And really it was kind of Phil Gould in the middle of those two there that was probably at his peak in terms of, you know, he'd won the two competitions and he was turning the roosters around. So three coaches at very um, transitional periods in their coaching runs. Uh, Matthew Ridge was king of the superboot, uh, being voted the best goal, goal kicker ahead of Ryan Girdler, Jason Taylor and Daryl Halligan. And Girdler's name in there stood out for me as, you know, we've talked before about how great a season he had uh, kicking goals at over 90% for Penrith. But he seemed to, he came a bit too late for the super boot era and then goal kickers kind of caught up to those kickers across the league and then Hasm comes in and changes the game again. It doesn't explain the fact why he was completely overlooked that he absolutely blew the super boot era out of the water. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. He, he surpassed yeah. the super boot era. He should have been yeah. in his own category. And you wonder, I get sick of doing this, like, you know, these hypotheticals, but you wonder if this season had happened in a United comp whether it would be remembered more about how good his goal kicking was this year. Absolutely. It definitely would be. Uh, but to the players of the year, and it was the first year in Rugby League Week history that there wasn't a change to any of those positions. So Tim Brasher was fullback, Wendell Saylor, winger, ET, centre, Laurie Daly and 
Alan Langer in the halves, Brad Fittler at lock, uh, Menzies in the second row, Glenn Lazarus at prop, and Steve Walters at hooker. So unchanged from 1996. Still a great squad. Really good squad. And uh, just a couple of things of interest to me about that. Laurie Daly and Alan Langer were the only two players to poll over 50% of the vote. In 1996, Daly, Brasher, E.T., Glenn Lazarus and Steve Walters all did. And also striking to me was a big decline in some of the vote share for those players. So Steve Walters dropped from 67 to 27, Glenn Lazarus from 84 to 45, and Brasher from 72 to 40. And all three of those players would lose their titles in 1998. So again, a bit of a changing of the guard, despite not much movement in the 1997 poll. I feel like even the players wouldn't have been watching a lot of the no. games. Yeah, so, yeah. So say you're a super player, you're not going to watch less than Balmain. Yeah, for sure. And and I think we talked about Tim Brasher earlier in this chapter, but you can see the same kind of thing with Steve Walters still hanging on, despite maybe regressing on the field. Mm. But it was a time of ascension for Brad Fittler, who was crowned the best player in the game, won the lock award and polled second in 5 eighths. The next year, he took the lock award again, despite not playing at that position all year. <laughs> well, that's just what you need to know about the poll, right? <laughs> uh, and overcame Daly to get the 5-8th award as well. Ruan Simsbar-style polling. Yeah. <laughs> but it just goes back to this crazy Brad Fittler career that, you know, three Dalian Player of the Year awards in three positions, and he wins the Rugby League Week players poll lock and 5-8 the same year. And with ARL having 22 games in the regular season, Super League only 18, they had to put together an averaging system to determine the winner, which I don't know if it was just one of those things or it was something in the averaging system that favoured the ARL. Uh, but what it didn't favour was the who'd we consider the great glamour players of the competition. So Brad Fittler wins the award with 163 points. Second was Craig Smith at Illawarra. Third was Jamie Goddard. Adam Muir was fourth. Steve Menzies in fifth. Then Jason Taylor. And then it was Stephen Kearney, the highest rated Super League player. So, I mean, all varying degrees of very good to great players. But if I ask you to say who the seven or eight best players of 1997 were, how many of those guys would be on that list? But those awards, you get those over the years, you know, like Dally M's, you know, Kevin Hastings or Terry Lamb when you're young, you know, just consistency gets you over the line. Yeah. I actually went to look at the list of Rugby League Week Player of the Year awards, like an award that actually was voted with a rating out of 10 for every game of the season, like whether that was biased towards more your consistent performers rather than the mercurial or flashy types. and Talisman. <laughs> yeah. And really, like, I can't say that, you know. Yes, you know, Kevin Hastings, three years in a row, but, I mean, he won the Rothmans in those times as well. Throughout the 80s, you've got Sturlow winning three times, Ray Price, you know, Gavin Miller when he won the Rothmans as well, you know, Mal Meninga into 1990. Into the 90s, you get, you know, Cliff Lyons, Laurie Daly, Alan Langer, Brad Fittler, then... Andrew John's winning five in a row. Jonathan Thurston only won one of those awards because you had this four-year period from 2003 where it was Steve Price, two times Nathan Hindmarsh and Luke Bailey. So I think overall the kind of flashy regarded as the greats of all time players stand out, but there are these odd years. 
And turning to the ARL's own award, so as we said, the Dallium wasn't awarded. So the Proven Summons Award was uh, introduced. And and really, I say the Dalliems weren't around, but the Proven Summons really replaced the Rothmans Medal, which uh, due to you know the cigarette sponsorship um, no longer being allowed, they had to come up with something else. It's such a shame that that was a cigarette brand because I never took it as that. I never knew. I know. What yeah, meant. yeah. I know. Yeah, it's a, I, it's, I just it's thought a cool it was. Name. Yeah, a, a night for your best powder blue puffy suit and <laughs> and uh, punch ups with Texan billionaires. <laughs> <laughs> so this award made it a treble for Brad Fittler, who took out the award. He may have missed out on it if he'd been rested for the last round of the regular season as Phil Gould was originally planning. So the Roosters were planning to rest 10 players, including Fittler, uh, but the ARL kicked up a big stink about it. Gould was forced to retract the decision. Fittler played and won you know, Man of the Match awards and probably polled all the points he needed to get the award in the end. So second was John Simon. So that would have been a little interesting note to his career if Fittler had been rested. It just goes to show again, John Simon, underrated as hell. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So a great year all around for Brad Fittler. Basically the only award he missed out was Open Rugby's Team of the Year, that going to uh, Daly at 5'8 and Andy Farrell at Lock. <laughs> of course. Um, I used to buy that magazine, as you know, always raving on about it. I just despise the name. The fact that they call it rugby over there just makes me want to vomit. Yeah. <laughs> so... A great year for Brad Fittler, and it wasn't over for him with uh, the semi-finals awaiting. And it was a very strange, and as it would turn out, very flawed semi-final system. So let's get into it. It was a top seven format, seven finalists in a twelve-team comp, which opened up the possibility, which was then duly realised, of a team losing more games than they won and still making the semi-finals, which. This is the downside of, you know, the great story of the Gold Coast is the fact that they, you know, weren't even at 50% wins. We don't even remember that, though, so that's good. Yeah. The guy in the street doesn't remember that. They just remember, oh, yeah, they made the final. Yeah. Yeah. So it's good in that respect. Uh, but when you actually drill down to what that means, uh, less good. So this was <laughs> Ken Shine at South Sydney. This new look final series is something we have a realistic shot at. Making the finals in recent years has been very tough for the teams without the big name players. But this season, seven teams will make it out of 12. And that gives us all a chance of getting there. Like This idea that being a bad team makes it hard to get into the finals as if that's a bad thing. <laughs> I, um, I, for someone who purports to hate partisan politics so much, I was right on board with using this as a... Um, anti-ARL tool for the whole season. I was out there spruiking. I mean, look at the final series. It's a joke. <laughs> I know. It still gets me that in this year of all these innovations from Super League, they went to the classic five-team format and, and we get this. <laughs> it's a monstrosity. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. Uh, the brainchild of Bob Fulton, in fact. <laughs> Now, you know my theory on if you played the game in rugby league or even if you're tenuously associated with it, your ideas will always be heard in the media and the game will hear your ideas no matter how stupid. And if yeah. you're a great ex-player, they'll be accepted without question. Yeah. Never mind the guy's name is Bozo, for Christ's sakes. 
you want to take his ideas on board. That's what you get. <laughs> and I think some of the advantages were, A, a true reward for being the minor premier. So as the minor premier, you got the first week off, you know, going back to the, the old uh, top five system. So it was restoring that reward for finishing first. It also gave you a lot more combinations of possible grand finalists. There'd been some criticism in the years since the top eight had been introduced that there were too many grand final combinations that were ruled out. So this system was seen as part of the answer to that and gave you lots of combinations. (laughs) Almost every combination. (laughs) It actually did. So as, as it started, before there was an issue which I'll get to, but when the format was devised, the first week six versus seventh elimination match was the only combination at the start of the series that couldn't result in those two teams being the grand finalists. So I think the ARL may have seen that and thought, oh, well, this is great. You know, it's you know a chaos final series. Who knows what will happen? But never mind you're playing each other three or four times in nothing games and getting injured. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So as early as October 1996, the system was viewed as a pending disaster. With <laughs> This was the series as originally devised. So teams that finish fourth and fifth play off in the first week. The winner would go on to play a sudden death match against the loser of the second or third place team, while the loser of that fourth versus fifth match would play a sudden death match against either the 6th or 7th place team. So as originally devised, you had an advantage of losing your opening semi-final game. Clear as mud, eh? Yeah. Uh, That criticism was actually picked up and they switched the draw, so um, that was taken out of the equation. But subsequent quirks of the system proved that they didn't think things through properly. Firstly, Brad Fittler drew his attention to the fact that In that first week, East play Norths. They go into a sudden death game the next week. Norths lose. They go into a sudden death game as well. There was just no advantage other than the team that you play. You want simplicity and elegance in your formats. You don't want red herrings. and Yeah. And on Freddie's point, okay, it's not ideal, but I'd say win more games over the course of the regular season. Then you can enjoy the spoils of finishing higher on the ladder. Of greater concern is how that system worked for those higher place teams. So Manly minor premiers get week one off and then go into week two facing the winner of second and third, and that was Newcastle beating Parramatta. So with that week two game, both of those teams, Manly and Newcastle, were guaranteed places in the preliminary final but have to play off against each other. And again, all that was at stake being who played the higher-ranked team, which is just an inexcusable farce. When you think (laughs) about how hard the game is, how hard they play, Manly and Newcastle in particular, lining up another Chief versus Spud concussion-a-thon for, like, (laughs) absolutely nothing. (laughs) No one hates a nothing game more than rugby league. So Neil Whitaker was asked about this farce and said, we'll have a look at it at the end of the season. (laughs) Great. That dead game between Manly and Newcastle was disappointing when it didn't matter who won or lost. Uh, Very true. But he went on to talk about the final system and the series as a whole, and he said, overall, I think it's gone well. 
It just needs a better understanding on how it works, which that's something you do before the final series, isn't it? It absolutely defies belief that they didn't go through these possibilities before implementing it. It's Bozo's got it written on the back of a um, coaster and it just gets rubber stamped and it's through. Like, didn't they go through the pitfalls? It's honestly staggering that they could come up with this and no one flagged the fact that there's a completely meaningless game in the middle of the semi-final series. Can you imagine if there was a major injury to a, you know, yeah. a Hitler? And, I mean, there were injuries in that game and and we'll get to that game shortly and the ramifications of it, but just crazy, 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 crazy. So in the moment, the ARL came under fire. A lot of criticism, valid all of it. I'm going to give the best line to Wayne Bennett, who said of the seven-team finals format that it was an exhibition down Sideshow Alley where everybody gets a stuffed prize. You've got to take it home and wash it. And when you wash it, it falls apart and the kids cry for days. <laughs> I, I don't know if he just come back from the Ecker Festival or something uh, because sideshows were on the brain for Wayne Bennett because he doubled down and went on to say, for the fans, this is real Sideshow Alley stuff, only without the fun, and all the clowns have offices. <laughs> but he doesn't understand Sideshow Alley because the idea is that you take the Mark's money and don't give him the stuff prize. Not everyone gets one. <laughs> I mean, the ARL did collect 26,000 marks money at, at the SFS. <laughs> I mean, if, uh, hats off to him for getting some revenue out of that farce. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is where I'd offer some defence of the ARL is that the actual final series, how it played out, it was great. Like there were comeback victories, there were extra time games, there was a lot of spite, there was a lot of compelling storylines. But again, what you said at the top of the show is exactly right. They fell ass backwards into it, so we can't give them too much credit. A lot of coaches and players in the game wanted some of that luck being taken out of the equation, and that was the luck of the referees' calls. So as we've talked about, Super League had introduced the video ref for 1997, and there was a growing campaign as the season progressed for the ARL to follow suit. Well, I remember this well because... I was one of the naive imbeciles that just was a fait accompli. Referees' errors are now finished. We've got the video ref. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not knowing there was going to be an increase in errors. I would love to show someone in 1997 the bunker system. <laughs> <laughs> I was legitimately just proclaiming it the greatest thing ever. Look, it's added in the NFL, it's perfect. It's out of the referee's hands now. Any fool can see on a video screen what's happening. Errors <laughs> <laughs> are a thing of the past, my friends. <laughs> the, see, for me, the biggest thing is not even that, this like promise of a utopia where as far from in this current year as we were in 1997, it's the fact that seemingly everyone associated with the ARL thought it was a completely reasonable thing to just introduce this system mid-year on the fly. That's the style of the year, I mean. <laughs> yeah. So in a match against Parramatta in July, Bob Fulton was in the press uh, campaigning to have the video replay introduced. Ironically enough, the inciting incident was uh, over a forward pass. So, you know, besides the very early years of the video ref, forward passes aren't included anyway. So it's funny that this was like this inciting incident 
But Bozo was met with a lot of support from uh, journalists, from fellow coaches with, again, staggering seems to be my word of this episode. But (laughs) this was Phil Gould's comment on the video ref. The ARL coaches voted 12-0 at the start of the season to have video replays used to assist referees. The system was trialled but then abandoned because we were told the ARL didn't have the capacity to use it at every game. The coaches then said it should be used wherever possible, even if it meant only a couple of games per week had it. How can this self-described but, you know, not completely without merit rugby league genius not see the flaws in using a video ref that's available for less than half the matches or whatever it would have been available for? Can you imagine a situation where on the same day a team makes the finals because he had the video ref to call on and another team misses out because they didn't? I mean, people think they're being um, legislated against in rugby league in a totally even competition. If you make it literally the haves and haves nots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, think about that. And considering the teams that are going to get the video ref are the teams that play in the Channel 9 games, uh, which teams are playing lots of Channel 9 games in 1997? (laughs) Is it the Chargers? Is it the Magpies? Or is it Manly and Ace? Yep. Uh, but most coaches were in support of it. David Waite, a rare voice of reason, saying that he didn't like the idea of changing the ball and the height of the net in the middle of the tennis match. Uh, famously, tennis matches do change their balls in the middle of the game, but the sentiment is there from David Waite. <laughs> uh, ARL captains were similarly in support. They were polled by Dean Ritchie at The Telegraph and all but Jason Taylor gave unequivocal support. The best thing for me in this is how it all seems to come down to a personal grievance. So Paul Sirenen said, A couple of weeks ago against West, Darren Stenter scored a try that was disallowed. Had it been awarded, we probably would have won. As it is, we lost. I'm fully for it. Paul Harrigan, I'm all for it. If it had been there Friday night, we may have had a different scoreline. <laughs> I've never heard one yet saying, you know, um, we had some calls go our way and I wish they could have been overturned. <laughs> And I'm just going to say this quote without saying the player's name. There were a few of our games this year which went against us due to poor decisions. Our season could have been turned around had we won those. That was Craig Teven of the South Queensland Crushers. (laughs) You know, if only the video ref was there in 1997, the Crushers would have been four premierships deep by now. (laughs) It could have been one of premiers. (laughs) And, you know, the Dolphins would be back in the BRL and never seeing the NRL, um, if only. But beyond the players, there was also a lot of media pressure. And again, it's journalists who are well regarded and are, you know, seemingly level headed, just seemingly losing all of that over this issue. So Daniel Lane in the Rugby League Week was saying that it was going to leave egg on the faces of Mick Stone and the ARL. Sherlock in the Rugby League Week saying there was no possible argument against the ARL introducing the video referee system for the finals. So by the time the finals started, the campaign was growing that, okay, we didn't have it in the regular season. Let's introduce it now. I mean, think about that. It's just insane. That's the sort of thing that could have taken away the fairy tale. Yeah, 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 for sure. All the media attention would have been on the errors, you know. Yeah. 
So Mick Stone and Neil Whitaker wouldn't back down. Stone saying, I'd be very nervous about using the replay review system in the final series when we haven't used it all year. I just wouldn't be confident we would have the human resources to get it right, even though Channel 9 has used it all year in Super League games. Give them kudos for doing the bare minimum of their job by not knee-jerking. I'm surprised they didn't just implement it though. Yeah. Uh, They had some unlikely support in Graham Annesley uh, at Super League who said that their cautious stance made sense. He said, it's not an easy thing to do. There's quite a few steps to it and there's the potential for something to go wrong if you rush into it. Firstly, there's the video ref who must have access to the TV director so he can see all the angles and as many replays as he needs. Then there's the task of getting the decision onto the big screen, which I like that because it's such a logistical challenge as well as getting referees that haven't had any experience with it suddenly just being thrown into it at a time when all eyes are on rugby league for the semifinals. It's just so crazy that there was so little pushback against the idea. We saw in the Super League one, you know, guys literally pushing the wrong buttons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's number one on the list. Yeah. Uh, And really, the most compelling argument is the fact that you can't just do this mid-season. So Neil Whitaker said, you don't start a competition under one set of rules and finish under another. Uh, So it sums it up perfectly if you ignore all the other times rugby league has started a season under one set of rules and ended it under another. But the right thing happened, sanity prevailed, and we went into the semi-final series Uh, Sands video referee. And so into week one, and as we talked about last week, it was Gold Coast who, thanks to the Crushers, set up a replay against the Illawarra Steelers. They'd been smashed the week before by the Steelers, uh, but on neutral ground at Parramatta Stadium before a a crowd of 8,197, managed to get a good win 25 to 14 and end the Steelers' season. I mean, I'm actually impressed that they got 8,000 for a match at Parramatta Stadium between Illawarra and Gold Coast. I think if there was ever a time to commit to home semifinals, this year was the year to do it. Uh, Into the next semifinal game, and this was the second replay of the previous weekend's fixture. Uh, So this was the Roosters taking on Norths, just as they'd done in the last round of the regular season. And that last game of the regular season coincided with the death of Diana, which took the sting out of the match. And on the next weekend, it was actually the day of the funeral, which was viewed by over 6 million Australians. So one of the biggest TV events of the 90s. All the TV stations were showing it, including Channel 9, which made a bit of an issue for their rugby league coverage. So they decided to show the semi from 3.30 rather than 4 o'clock so they could get it finished in time. The only problem is that the match went to extra time. So the Roosters kicked a late field goal to tie the match uh, and sent it into extra time. But for TV viewers, that's where it ended. There was no TV coverage of the extra time period. Instead, we went straight to Diana's funeral. Big event. I'm not going to downplay the Diana event, but it went for a long time, is all I'm saying. We could have, <laughs> we could have got the result. And on every other TV channel as well, you know, give the fans some credit. So the game itself, the Bears were winning 13-0 at halftime and looked to be doing it pretty easily. Phil Gould told his team to 
just relax. All they need to do is score first and watch North slip into panic mode. He said, I thought if we could get on the board first, it would make North nervous and they would try to protect their lead. That's ultimately what happened with Jason Taylor's first half field goal uh, being met by two more field goals from Taylor in the second half. So a rare three field goal game. Almost a rugby game. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And the Roosters go on to win the game in extra time. The other big game of the weekend, Newcastle versus Parramatta, also saw a big comeback with the Knights down by 18 points early in the match and going on to win the game 28-20, to with Joey getting one of the individual tries of the season to bury the Eels. That took us to week two and, again, highlights the flaws in the ARL not committing to home finals. So they had committed to a Queensland final, and the game between East and the Gold Coast was originally scheduled to be played at Suncorp Stadium. So that decision was made you know, months before they knew who would be playing. And looking at their Queensland lot roster of the Chargers and the Crushers, at the time it looked like it would almost certainly be two Sydney teams playing in that grand final at a time where even Queenslanders weren't turning up to rugby league matches. So Ross Livermore at the QRL was on board with the idea to scrap the Suncorp semi-final. Uh, it was going to cost the QRL a bunch of money to play it there. The Crushers had had to open the gates for their last two club games because attendances were so poor. But as it turns out, they could have had a Queensland team playing in that semi-final. The Chargers not only qualifying for the finals but making it to that second week and that fixture But by then, the decision was made to revert to the Parramatta Stadium. So for the second time in two weeks, the Chargers were playing a semi-final in Parramatta. And it was a game that was won 32-10 by the Chargers, but a game that they were in for a lot of the contest. So with 26 minutes to go, they were only losing 16-10 when their captain, Graham Mackay, was sin-binned for back-chatting at the ref and the Roosters went on to score three tries while he was in the bin. Bad, bad form. (laughs) Bad form, and something that Phil Economides maybe should have anticipated. So earlier in the season, Mick Stone said that Economides had asked him how the club could reduce the penalties being conceded, and Mick Stone's response was to sack your captain. I've never understood that. Has there ever been a penalty overturned in the history of sport by mapping off at the ref? Yeah. They continue to do it. And if you're the captain, you set in the worst tone. Yeah. Yeah. So very poor form by Graham Mackay. Uh, Ends the Chargers' season in the end. Great football dial though, Graham Mackay. Yeah. (laughs) And it was a disappointing end for Parramatta, who went out in straight sets, losing their second uh, semi-final to Norths who, again, a bit of a comeback. The Bears conceding two early tries and then having an 18-0 run in the second half to end the Parramatta season. But the really interesting thing about that week two is that meaningless game between Manly and Newcastle. So at that point, it was the, the biggest crowd of the semi-final series and it was actually a very entertaining and compelling game. Despite Fulton making a light-hearted comment that he'd spoken to Mal Reilly before the game and talked about a non-aggression pact. But I think if there were any two coaches that were going to go at full tilt 
in this game, it is Bozo and Rarely, and that's basically how it played out. If you go for a non-aggression pack, that's when injuries are bound to happen with the football yeah, group, yeah. right? Yeah, for sure. But yeah, so it's two coaches that wouldn't back down, and it was two teams that, in our footballing lives, I think this was the first real big rivalry like that. I was around for Paro Canterbury just yeah. the, when I was really young. I don't even know if that was as spiteful. I think of Parramatta and Canterbury almost as like Brisbane and Canberra, where it was only a rivalry because they were the two best teams. It wasn't like this. Right. You know, I think of the rivalry since, you know, Manly and Melbourne or, you know, the Roosters and Souths once they both got good again. If you were going to have two teams play each other in a game with almost zero ramifications, these are the two teams you want playing in that match. And it delivered with a lot of spite, a lot of big incidents. The biggest probably being Nick Kossef, who was cited for diving at Matthew Johns's legs after a kick. And this is something that had happened in a trial match at the start of the year. So I think the Knights already had some concerns about Kossef's tackling style. And the Johns family were uniformly outraged about the incident. So... The Johns boy's mother, Gail, said that we watched it on video when we got home and I felt sick. Kate, Matthew's sister, never goes to watch the boys play because she worries about them getting hurt. And after seeing it, she said to us, now you know why. <laughs> That's such a Newcastle comment. It's so quaint and also so self-absorbed. The, um, <laughs> the ARL's going to take Kate Johns's, um sensibilities into account. <laughs> well, they maybe should have taken Kate's sensibilities into account. Gary Johns was quite insistent that they take his sensibilities into account. Uh, Having an argument with Neil Whittaker in the Newcastle dressing room after the incident saying, I suppose this will be swept under the carpet again. This is my son you're talking about. (laughs) And Neil Whittaker responding, don't tell me how to run things. We have certain procedures. Uh, More words were exchanged before uh, Whittaker walked out and, Gary Johns was left seething about the treatment of his son. Do you reckon that Neil Whitaker was advised that he was effing kidding? <laughs> and uh, Nick Kosef not on the Gary Johns Christmas card list, saying, the bloke I'm most disappointed in is Nick. He's a friend of the boys and a friend of ours, but I've lost a lot of respect for him over this. It's a tough game, but that was sickening and I still haven't got over it. The two most loaded mundane words in rugby league, ordinary and disappointed. <laughs> it means so much. You can tell a whole um, Tolstoy novel with disappointed and ordinary. <laughs> but I love how Gary Johns must have inserted himself into the scene at the time that he can say that Nick Kosef was a friend of his. <laughs> uh, so Nick Kosef ended up getting a one-week suspension for the incident, which met with some dissatisfaction by Bob Fulton, who... Gave uh, touch judge Martin Weeks, who I think lived in Western Australia, judging by this comment, he said, the referee let it go and then Baldy came in. They fly that bloke in once a week from Perth. What for? (laughs) (laughs) And on the other side of the field, Manly were very put out by an alleged spitting incident involving Tony Butterfield and Terry Hill. So Terry Hill refusing to shake Butterfield's hand after the match, saying that, well, this was his comment. Spud Carroll came over to me as we left the field and said Butterfield wanted to apologize for spitting on me. 
I said, no way, it's the lowest act there is. If it was on the heat of the moment, I could understand it to a certain degree, but it was premeditated. I've got no respect for the bloke. He's got life with me. (laughs) Butterfield's version is the only reason I knew there was any drama was because they started sledging me about it in the second half. I asked Spud about it after the game and I told him to apologise to Hill if he was that upset about it. But if I deliberately spat in his face, don't you think he would have blown up about it straight away and not started whinging in the second half? It smacks of a real get square to me over the Kosef business. And going back to your point about loaded words, to bring it up now is pretty ordinary. (laughs) I didn't even know that was coming, so that's good (laughs) serendipity. Well, of course it was coming. It's a rugby league podcast. <laughs> I mean, I can't see Butterfield. I went to uni with Butterfield. I know the guy. Real laid-back dude, cool dude. No way he's spitting in someone's face for mine. Well, that and the person who was on the other side of the incident was maybe on Butterfield's side. So Ian Burnett, the Knights' chief executive, said, people who know Tony Butterfield and also know Terry Hill, I'm sure, will be able to draw their own conclusions. <laughs> anyway, if Terry Hill gives you life, he's doing you a massive favour. <laughs> it means your lobster pots are going to be plentiful. <laughs> uh, and the drama unfolded in the press over the course of the week. Uh, so at a certain point, Neil Whittaker said it was time to put up and shut up. He said, if Manly want to make a formal allegation, then they ought to do it. If allegations are to be made, then they ought to be made through the appropriate channels that exist in the game. Headlines like we saw in the papers today aren't good for the game. Uh, And Manly declined going any further with that, and that was the end of it. Uh, But not the end of the spite between the two clubs, uh, and not the end of their story in 1997. So into those preliminary finals, as the losers of that game... Newcastle were tasked with playing the highest ranked of the remaining two teams, which was North Sydney. And again, utter heartbreak for Norths, who went on to lose their fourth preliminary final in seven seasons. Yeah, heartbreaking for them. And you can just see it in some of the comments and some of the reports about the game. So, you know, they talked about Jason Taylor staying in the shower for almost an hour alone and despondent, coming out white as a sheet and utterly bereft. Peter Louis saying, if someone says there's always next year, I'll go off. And, I mean, it's all hindsight because in different universe, they go on to win the comp the next year and all those preliminary wrongs of the past have been righted. But, I don't know, in just the way it's being talked about, you just get this sense of finality, almost as if the players and coaches knew that that was it, that was their chance. And for the second of those four preliminary finals, it was their usually ultra-reliable goal kicker who let them down. In 1991, that was Daryl Halligan. This game in 1997, Jason Taylor, uh, two goals from five attempts. (laughs) That's what happens when your Superboot participants are shooting at 72%. (laughs) (laughs) And the last of those misses coming after Michael Butner's 75th-minute try the you know score twelve all a chance to take the lead uh, and then misses Matthew Johns goes on to kick the field goal that was the difference then right on full time Owen Craigie getting a late try Butner was an absolute gun back then by the way yeah uh, the other really notable thing about this was a defining tackle in the end by Darren Albert on Matt Sears Matt Sears away running down the sideline 
seemed certain to score. Then out of nowhere, Darren Albert coming through and pulling Sears out into touch before he could get over the line, which a great finals play, like spectacular defense, doing a Sears on Matt Sears, who of course had run down Brett Mullins a couple of years before. Uh, But I would rarely say this about Ian Heads, but how wrong could you be? This was Ian Heads' statement on that Darren Albert passage of play. Whatever else happens on the long march that's the 1997 ARL final series, nothing surely will top the explosion of spontaneous acclamation that washed over the ground after Albert's miraculous save against North. It's very poetic, though, that it was Albert in that and then Albert in the GF. I know. Like, just reading that line from Ian Heads, it just gave me this chill to think that there'd been this spectacular play this defining play that, yeah, of course, in the moment you would write something like that and then just a week later just being you know blown out of the water with how wrong your statement could be. I remember seeing Albert in the servo once. He had his hotted up Commodore. He was in Merriweather. We were both getting fuel. And I remember being really excited to see him. I don't usually get excited seeing footy players, but he's just one of those guys. Like, oh, my God, it's Darren Albert. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was originally thinking – Oh, it's so funny that it was this great play that's just been forgotten to time. But I reckon you go to Newcastle and, and ask anyone about the 97 final series, you know, half of them are going to say, oh, Darren Albert, you know, got us into the grand final with that tackle on Sears. So I'm sure Newcastle fans haven't forgotten it. No, definitely. Um, the other big drama of that match was Andrew Johns getting a punctured lung due to a painkilling injection gone wrong. And this is an injury that we're going to discuss in much greater detail in our next chapter. Uh, but I just wanted to point out another couple of injuries that happened in that game with Brett Clements, who'd you know, been doing a great job at hooker all year for the Knights, and Matt Gidley both ruled out of the grand final during the game. Cruelty. Mm. Uh, cruelty for them and also making the Knights' task much harder. Uh, in that other semi-final, it was Manly against the Roosters. And again, it was a final series of comebacks. Manly were at one stage up by 10, only to have the Roosters equalise in the 73rd minute. And then Craig Field kicking the match-winning field goal, which after we discussed Craig Field uh, earlier in this chapter, it's a great moment for him. So you could forgive him for getting a bit excited about it. He said, a few of the boys had a laugh at my excitement, but I'm used to coming in the bottom two teams in the comp. Uh, And Jeff Toovey echoing that sentiment saying, after kicking that field goal, Craig was jumping up and down. We were all just standing around, but I guess he's used to finishing last. (laughs) Which a bit cruel to South, but, you know, a nice (laughs) moment for Craig Field. Uh, It was a bad moment in that match for Jim Sedaris being cited for a spear tackle type incident and coming uh, under the watch of the judiciary. So with his place in the grand final at stake, he went to Phillips Street. His defence was that it wasn't intentional of the charge of lifting Simon Benetti into a dangerous position. In that defence, they did the time-honoured thing of using one of the journalists who was present uh, in a demonstration of the tackle. So Jeff Dunn was brought up in the Simon Benetti role while Jim Sedaris and Neil Tierney imitated what they did in the tackle. So part of their defense was to show other bad tackles by Jim Sedaris during the game. Um, so Frank Stanton, who was there representing Sedaris, produced video evidence 
that all Jim Sedaris was trying to do was to twist Benetti onto his back, as he did in every tackle. They showed another tackle of him doing the same thing to Scott Goulet, and that led to Jim Sullivan, the judiciary chairman, saying that that tackling action could have easily led to Scott Goulet being lifted in the same fashion as Benetti. So that defence backfired, and Jim Sedaris was outed for a week. How primitive is that for a yeah. judicial system? Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> and Jim Sedaris's part, this is how it was reported in the Rugby League Week. Jim Sedaris has called for changes to the lifting rule because he sure as hell won't be altering his own tackling technique. <laughs> oh, Rugby League. <laughs> Yeah, funny, are they? And he thinks that intent should be the thing that matters. He said, people have to realise that in a split second, things can go wrong in a tackle. And the issue should be whether or not intent was there. Oh, yeah, no worries. We'll just have 15 blokes in wheelchairs because you didn't mean yeah. to hurt them. <laughs> but it's so funny thinking back how acceptable that was and as an excuse back then. I'm sure many times in the 90s I would have uttered something similar that, you know, oh, he didn't mean to. I can't believe how dangerous it was. Yeah, yeah. Every game it was called a driving tackle. Get him up in the end, drive him into the ground. (laughs) Uh, And despite, you know, being adamant he wouldn't change his tackling style, as the week went on, I think Sedaris got a bit more circumspect about it and he said that he was at a birthday party for his girlfriend's nephew and a kid came up to him uh, and, as Sedaris said, a 10-year-old boy came up and said, what about you landing that guy on his head? You could have snapped his neck. I was shocked and it reminds you that all the kids are watching everything you do. I mean, they don't think very far ahead, do they? (laughs) You shouldn't be allowed to interview rugby league players after they get suspended, especially for a grand final. They're just going to say something outlandish, 100%. So in fairness to them, you should give them a day, I think. Yeah, and (laughs) I think his actual quote immediately after sums up how silly and futile it is to ask them their thoughts about it. So uh, asked how he felt. Sadara said, how do you think I feel? I'm going to miss out on a fucking grand final. <laughs> but the, honestly, that's the only answer that question deserved. Yeah. <laughs> it really knocks me around when I see guys miss grand finals. And I'm actually a huge advocate for the maybe three games to one waiting system for origins yep. and grand finals. It just yeah, yeah, yeah. every year some poor bastard sitting on the sideline. That sounds like a bad incident, but I mean, some trivial incidents with points or something like that, you know? Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it was surprising to me that Sidaris was only the fifth player to miss a grand final through suspension. Plenty since. Yeah, plenty since. So Artie Beetson in 69, the first. Then you had Greg Pierce, Steve Roach, and John Lomax. Yeah, bad news. It really is. And I don't know, thinking about that, Alan Sullivan, the judiciary chairman, sorry, called him Jim before, but he made the point that it was a personal tragedy on Jim Sedaris, but had to ban him anyway. And, you know, we often joke about the, you know, the use of these words like tragedy for football, but like, it really is a personal tragedy. Like, imagine missing that. Another one of those moments, though, if changed, uh, the whole thing changes, the whole history of rugby league changes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. If he plays. They definitely could have used him. And in the aftermath, they had to think about what they were going to do. So as the week went on, the attention turned to how they were going to replace Sedaris. Uh, Out of left field came the idea that Cliff Lyons may play dummy half with Tuvi at 5'8 and Craig Field at halfback. 
in the end, it was Anthony Colella who got the starting role and Cliff Lyons came off the bench. It's funny to me that there was no thought of a like Lions at six, field at seven, two at nine combination. Like that didn't even get reported as being an option. I thought that was what happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's just the rep thing, but in my head, like I thought Tuvi had basically moved to be a full-time hooker at this stage of his career. Uh, but you and our listeners are going to get many more memories of that game as we watch it again in preparation for our next chapter, which in doing the research, I'm just really excited to talk about the Newcastle story. But this is where we're at, a build-up for a, a grand final that it was just so perfect that after all of this, this was the grand final we got, this rivalry between these two teams, storylines everywhere. It's just so rugby league to just to pull out of the hat like that. Yeah. The grand final build-up really did have it all. You had suspension drama. You had, you know, will he play, won't he play drama with Andrew Johns' injury. Then you had this tense rivalry with both parties in that rivalry doing everything to play it down and say that it's not a grudge match and it's not even that much of a rivalry. Like the first time I think either team actually did try to play that rivalry down. I'm looking forward to watching it too. And I really hate the fact that I'm known as a Grinch and a glass half full type dickhead that calls it half a comp, but I can't (laughs) get away from it. (laughs) I can't stop doing it. Uh, Well, I'll get you to save it for our next chapter, which will be our comprehensive Newcastle chapter. So I'm going to be drawing on your memories and experiences of Newcastle in particular. There's a lot I want to delve into, into the people of Newcastle and what makes the place what it is. And could this have happened in any other place? This crazy outpouring of support, this remarkable last minute win, um, we're going to get into all of it. I'm going to ask a couple of my uh, old mates, one of them a diehard Newcastle man, uh, about that time as well. Get some other perspectives from my um, hazy memory as well. Yeah, cool. So, uh, yeah, this is one I've been looking forward to for a long time. Uh, That is coming to you soon. We hope you've enjoyed this chapter. Uh, But for now, that is it. We will speak to you soon. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial 
plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.